The point I wanted to make about RFK Jr., because what ended up happening was a lot of people ended up focused on one or two things with which they disagreed, what positions that he took. There were a lot of people angry and upset about just how committed and kind of, I would even say, fanatical he was in his devotion to pro-Israel narratives. It, he went much further than even the average Democrat goes in heralding Israel's moral superiority and nobility, claiming they have never done anything like targeted civilians on purpose, claiming essentially that the Palestinians should be happy or lucky, I guess, that they are part of what people really are I think recognizing finally is only describable as apartheid, as a system of government that, if you count Gaza and the West Bank and Israel, which is very close to being a system in which a majority of people are ruled with no legal rights by a, a minority. And to leave the Gaza and the West Bank just indefinitely in this state, I mean, people in the Gaza Strip cannot leave physically the Gaza Strip. It is an open-air prison of, prison of 2 million people. People in the West Bank go through all kinds of humiliations. To just brush that all aside, even if you're somebody who at the end of the day does support the Israeli view with so much callousness is something that upset a lot of people, and I understand that. I was kind of surprised myself to hear the extent to which he went to defend the Israeli point of view in a way that you don't really hear much of these days. Maybe from some evangelical politicians on the right who value Israel for their own religious reasons. I had Marjorie Taylor Greene on my show, and I kind of pressed her in the same way as I pressed RFK, and she was very similarly insistent that not only was Israel the the morally superior party, but the U.S. should continue its financial support of Israel, even while insisting that the U.S. should not support Ukraine or other countries because it can't afford it. She somehow wanted to isolate Israel, shield it from that kind of critique. Could be for religious reasons, could be because of ideological ones. But anyway, that was one thing that made a lot of people upset. And then the other thing that made him ups- other people upset, sometimes the same people, sometimes different people, was his views on China, in which he basically said he sees Russia the same way as China, as a country that the United States is encircling, deliberately provoking, escalating its aggression toward and therefore kind of making a self-fulfilling prophecy that they are our enemy. And there are a lot of politicians who will say, I think we are being too aggressive or too militaristic when it comes to Russia. And then we'll turn around and say, and I think we instead should be focused on China, meaning I think our military force should be directed at China. There are other politicians will say, I think we need to get along better with China, but Russia is the evil enemy. So Republicans tend to say the former, establishment Republicans. I think we're looking at Russia way too antagonistically. We should be looking at China that way. Democrats say we need to be able to get along better with China, and it's Russia that is the grave evil threat, although a lot of Democrats are now joining Republicans saying both Russia and China are these grave threats. That really is more the position of the establishment wings of both parties. RFK Jr. is one of the few people who says... I think the U.S. is acting provocatively and antagonistically toward Russia, and I also think the same way about China, and my solution is let's pull back our bases 
from Eastern Europe. Let's pull back our bases from Guam and Australia and South Korea and Japan and stop encircling China with all these military bases. He pointed out the U.S. has 800 military bases abroad. China has one or two at most. And if we do that, each country will be less hostile. And there are a lot of people on the right who want a more bellicose view of China, who believe China is the aggressor, even though if you look at a map, the United States has China physically encircled with military bases and flyovers and missiles in a way that China does not even come close to having that kind of a presence near the United States homeland. But there are a lot of people on the right who don't see China in that way, who do see China as a real threat. So some people were upset by his views on Israel. Some people were upset by his views on China. Some people were upset by both. The thing that I found so striking about that interview, though, beyond those specific views or any other specific views he expressed, and by the way, I think Donald Trump is actually pretty close to RFK Jr. when it comes to how he talks about both Russia and China. Trump did pursue an economic trade war with China, but never talks about the need to be more aggressive militarily with China, never beats his chest about wanting to go to war with China over Taiwan, talks respectfully about President Xi as terms of not somebody who he's, whose form of government he admires, but as a, just a country that he thinks needs to be respected in the world as a powerful government. He often talks, President Trump does, I think he's had some really frightening classified briefings about the power of nuclear weapons. If you listen to Trump talk about nuclear war, he always will hint that the things he learned about the powers of nuclear of our nuclear arsenal is incredibly frightening. The capacity for us to end all of human existence in the blink of an eye is, if you're delving into those classified briefings and hearing that, is something that to any healthy human being will be very alarming. And it should make you extremely reluctant to pursue policies that could lead to military conflict, direct military conflict, either with Moscow or Beijing, both of which are very nuclear-armed powers. And I don't know why, but we seem to have lost that fear in the United States as though we think nuclear war is an impossibility, like inherently it just won't happen. We don't care about it anymore. We don't fear it anymore, and we should. And I think President Trump, does have a healthy fear of nuclear war, and he applies that both to China and Russia in a way that I think RFK Jr. did as well. Marion Williamson, who I interviewed, totally supports Biden's war policies in Ukraine, thinks we ought to be involved militarily in Ukraine the way we are. I don't understand how you can mount a Democratic primary challenge against a sitting president if you're not opposed to their war policy. That is what RFK Jr.'s father did along with Eugene McCarthy and driving Lyndon Johnson out of the race in 1968, was running on a platform of opposing the war in Vietnam. If you stand up the way Marion Williamson does and says, I support President Biden's war policies in Ukraine, I think we should be treating Russia as this grave, evil enemy or whatever. I don't see how you can possibly expect to make any inroads in a presidential primary. You have to turn it into a referendum on whether or not we should be pursuing this bellicose, dangerous war with Russia. And he both, he applies that same framework to China, and that made some people on the right, who I think are willing to give RFK Jr. hearing, unhappy. People on the left, even people on the right who are more isolationist, who don't believe we should be enthralled to Israel 
We're giving billions of dollars a year to Israel when U.S. citizens have a lower quality of life, a lot of them do, than Israeli citizens. Didn't like his answers on Israel either. But what I found so interesting about RFK Jr., independent of those policy views, is you have to think about this is somebody who was born into as much privilege as you can possibly be born into in the United States. He is the son of Robert F. Kennedy, of Robert F. Kennedy, who was the brother of a president, a senator from New York, the attorney general of the United States, a leading presidential candidate. He is of that generation where the extreme wealth of Joseph Kennedy, his grandfather, was not yet fully diluted. He was born into great wealth, to fame, with this storied name. And the Kennedys are Democrats. His uncle was a Democratic president. His father was a senator from New York. His other uncle, Ted Kennedy, was a longtime Democratic president, uh, senator from Massachusetts and ran for president in 1980 against Jimmy Carter. As a Democratic candidate, they're Democrats. So his whole life he's been inculcated with Democratic Party ideology. So when I mentioned on my show a few weeks ago, I was talking about RFK Jr.'s candidacy in a mostly approving and positive way, especially the need to have debates. And I said, look, there are certain things that he believes with which I vehemently disagree. And I mentioned the fact that he was a supporter of Russiagate. And when I did that, his campaign contacted me. Dennis Kucinich is his campaign manager. Several other people on his campaign contacted me and said, that's not a fair characterization of RFK's view on Russiagate. He's a Russiagate skeptic. He agrees with you, actually. You had influence on his views, as did other people. And I went back and looked, and I did see some pro-Russiagate gestures, but I had characterized him as a kind of vehement or fanatical supporter of Russiagate, and I went back and looked at the request of his campaign, concluded that was an excessive characterization. I then withdrew it. A couple days later on this show, I said, I just want to correct something, and I'm going to have RFK Jr. here. And then you heard when I asked him his views on Russiagate, he said, I've never heard this from any major political figure before whom I've interviewed, and I've interviewed a lot, a lot of different countries. He said, you were right on my views of Russiagate. You were right when you said I was a supporter of Russiagate. I was a supporter of Russiagate. And then he didn't blame anybody else. He didn't say at the time it was reasonable to think that, and then subsequent events led him to realize he was wrong. He said, I've never heard anyone say this, I don't think, in an interview like this, I, I felt victim to propaganda. I did not think critically enough about what I was hearing. But everyone who I knew... I'm sure they're all Democrats. He lives in Hollywood. He's married to a well-known actress, Cheryl Hines, who became famous for the role she played on Curb Your Enthusiasm as Larry David's wife, Cheryl. So you can imagine what his life is like. He's very wealthy. He lives in L.A., in the middle of Hollywood culture. Everybody in Hollywood basically is a Democrat, a liberal. So the idea that Russiagate is real, I'm sure, in his world, is something that has never been questioned. And he told that story. He went out to dinner with Oliver Stone and Oliver Stone's son, Sean Stone, who used to host his show on RT, is a pretty radical political dissident. I know him somewhat. Uh, and when he or his wife mentioned Russiagate, Oliver Stone rolled his eyes in this very disparaging way. I can just imagine Oliver doing that in the way that I'm sure he did it. And RFK Jr. said, well, it's Oliver Stone. I know he embraces, you know, kind of 
radical views or fringe views. After all, RFK Oliver Stone made a whole film questioning the official story on the assassination of JFK on RFK Jr.'s uncle. So, and that was a very controversial film that Hollywood succeeded in using to kind of drive Oliver Stone out of Hollywood the way it long wanted to do. And he said, I didn't really get convinced because it's Oliver Stone, but it was the first seed. And then the more I started looking, the more I realized that this was pure propaganda. And he said, it was the COVID debate and the controversy in which he was involved when he started getting accused of spreading Russian disinformation by questioning the vaccine, when he started realizing, wait a minute, what's going on with this Russian narrative? What is this really being utilized for or weaponized for? And it was the Durham report, he said, the recently filed Durham report from two months ago or less, in which John Durham concluded that the FBI under James Comey launched a investigation into Trump-Russia collusion that had no evidentiary basis of any kind to justify that, the initiation of that investigation, that made him realize that he had been propagandized and had been wrong in his views about Russiagate and came to believe that the whole thing was a scam. And there are times politicians will say, oh, they were wrong. Hillary Clinton says, I was wrong about the Iraq war. That's because they have to. Hillary Clinton, you know, is running for president of the Democratic Party where the Iraq war is vehemently unpopular. Of course, she has to say she was wrong. So it's to her benefit to do that. In the case of RFK Jr., saying Russiagate is a scam is something that is going to alienate him from every one of his political and social circles. And I believe when people kind of reach a conclusion where they say, I was wrong, in a way that doesn't benefit them but jeopardizes their immediate self-interest, that is a strong sign of the authenticity of their conviction. But the thing that reinforced my view even more, that he's somebody who has this very rare willingness to listen to things with an open mind, is that if you listen to my exchange I had with him on Israel, even though he was very devoted to this narrative that Israel is better than its neighbors, is a superior democracy, he kept saying you'd rather live in Israel than Saudi Arabia if you're gay or a transvestite, as he said it. You'd rather live in Israel than wherever, the West Bank or any Arab country. I was kept trying to interject to say, that's not. I don't care about that. That's not what I'm asking you. What I'm asking you is the question of U.S policy of sending billions of dollars every year to Israel for military aid that they then use to buy weapons from U.S. arms dealers. I listened to his speeches and his interviews on Ukraine, many of them, before I interviewed him, and he constantly emphasizes in this very eloquent way that Americans at home don't have access to health care or livable wages, they have to work three jobs with no benefits, that neoliberal global institutions have destroyed the American way of life, have deindustrialized the United States that Americans are suffering greatly. And he's saying, why should we be sending enormous amounts of money to Ukraine, another country, when our own citizens are suffering so much that we can't afford that war, even if it's one that we ought to fight? And so when I asked him, but what about Israel? It's the same exact thing, the same arguments that people make about Ukraine. They're a democracy, they're our ally, therefore we should send our, them our money. Is when you reject in Ukraine but not in Israel, how do you go around the United States with so many people suffering, justifying that we spend billions of dollars of aid each year in Israel? He 
listened to my questions and the arguments I made to him and said, you know what, now that you're making these points, I'm starting to think maybe you're right. Maybe it is time to tell Israel, look, you need to take care of yourself and you're on your own. So in other words, in the middle of the interview, it wasn't just Russiagate where he had already renounced his way of thinking as a victim of propaganda, but even in the middle of the interview, during a pretty heated part of or at least a contentious part. And it was a little heated. It got a little, there was a lot of interjection, a lot of back and forth during that part of the interview. He was willing to say, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, the way you're presenting it, the way you're making these arguments, maybe you're right. Maybe we do need to stop our hate to Israel. Notwithstanding everything I just dug in and said that I've heard and believed forever. And this attribute, this willingness to change your mind about long-held views is one I regard as extremely valuable in a public figure like that because it shows that he, in order to do that, you need to have become radicalized. You need to believe that the faith you previously put into U.S. institutions and the narratives they spread is unwarranted. And I think most of us have had a moment like that. For me, I didn't care much about politics in the 1990s. I kind of found it low stakes. And I really started paying a lot of attention to politics in the early 2000s after 9-11 when I was living in New York because the attack on civil liberties really concerned me, the climate in which dissent was not able to be expressed, and then obviously the grotesque failures at best of our leading political media institutions to have disseminated a falsehood so consequential as Iraq has WMDs or as an alliance with Al-Qaeda, for a lot of people that shook and destroyed their faith in institutions of authority and caused people to go back and start reevaluating all their core beliefs. And that's what led me to start writing about politics was I did that. You know, I started saying, well, if they lied about this, and it's not just conservative politicians and media outlets, but the New York Times and the Atlantic and the New Yorker and Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton and John Kerry, if they united the establishment to deceive us about this, what else have they been lying about? And then you start questioning everything they say. For other people, it was the 2008 financial crisis. For other people, it was Russiagate. And for him, it was COVID because that was an issue in which he was very steeped in terms of expertise and study and research, the idea about vaccines. And to watch the U.S. government disseminate such obvious falsehoods and then have the corporate media protect them and ratify them and shield them from dissent and have big tech censor the ability to challenge them. I think he even got limited or banned several times on social media platforms is something that really shakes your faith in American institutions and will cause you to question every form of propaganda that you previously believed. And I think that is something that happened to President Trump, and I think that is something that has happened to RFK Jr. And that opening that that creates for people to start realizing the ways in which they've been deceived and to think much more critically about the narratives being fed to them by institutions of political and journalistic authority arguably is at least as valuable, if not more so, than any specific public policy view because it means they're willing to rethink things. They're susceptible to being persuaded rather than being entrenched in some dogma or afraid to say things that their immediate political and social circles will reject. And... I didn't like his Israel explanations any more than a lot of people. But the fact that he was so open-minded about 
those things I just explained made me view him on balance as a very positive force and someone I hope gets a lot of uh, opportunity to debate Joe Biden. The clip you just watched is from the live after show we do on Locals, exclusively for our local subscribers. The live after show airs every Tuesday and Thursday nights, immediately following our live system update show on Rumble, which is freely available to everyone. To join our Locals community, simply click the Join button under each video on our Rumble page or at the link below. That not only entitles you to exclusive access to our after show, where we take your questions, respond to your critiques and feedback, and hear suggestions for issues we should cover and people we should interview, but also to the transcripts for each show that we produce, as well as the exclusive written content we publish there. Enjoy.